everyone. Welcome back to Evil Putting a True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney. And I'm Patrick. Feels really good to be back. It really does. It's Thank like you, guys. Peace. Yeah, it kind of is a, um unintentional season two. It's kind of needed, though. It was. And thank you guys so much for being patient. I'm a little sick. Um, I had a cold. Yeah, so she sounds um, a little off. It's, 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 I just got my voice back literally this week. Like two days so. ago, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, my week back, I'm not going to be able to record with no voice. It sounds voice. 100 times better. It's not Marge Simpson-y as bad as it was. I sounded like Marge Simpson. I did. Yeah. I did. Gives me character. It, yeah, exactly. It gives you a little, <laughs> little pizzazz or something like that. No, well, that's not what you said the other day. You said it sounds like you've been smoking a pack of Marlboros. For 20 years. Now. Well, it did. <laughs> that's what you sounded like. I know. I'm a little better now, though. Yeah, you definitely I feel better. I just sound a little bit off. But thank you guys for being patient with us. We took a month off. We took the month of June off. We took almost two months off because we took most of May off also. Yeah. And um, it was much needed. I, if for those of you who don't know, I've been diagnosed with lupus and it's been fun character building. Yeah, that's right? a good way to put it. <laughs> I have two kinds of lupus. Um, if you are at all interested in that, please let me know. Uh, as a, we just kind of decided this right before we sat down to record, Patrick, but you and I are going to be uploading a health update to our Patreon yeah. next week. Well, they've been asking for it. They, they, they are so kind over there. They're, we're all a group of friends over yeah, yeah, there, right? Absolutely. So they've been asking for updates. They've been they've asking, been asking if, you know, if I'm comfortable enough to share, I am comfortable enough to share with you guys. However, I do not want to upload an episode into the stratosphere just in general. That just is me bitching because that's what it's going to be. <laughs> no, Some of those things you don't want to put out into the entire world. There's a small audience. Yeah. I mean, if you're interested you know, let me know. Maybe we can think about putting the episode mainstream. If if you don't want to be a Patreon member, totally get that. Totally get that. If you do want to know about my health journey <laughs> here coming up. Patrick, enough about me. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. It's you look good. It's hell outside. It's a heat wave. Uh, like 115 every day the last two weeks here in Texas. But no, I'm good. I'm glad. I'm, glad, I'm excited to be back. It's fun. I missed it. Yeah, I missed it too. I missed all of you guys so much. Our podcaster friends, I've stayed in touch, but you know, it's not the same when you're not uploading. Yeah, you know, you know, we're, we're dealing with the stuff you're talking about. And then we also took a vacation there. And then, you know, everyone's been asking us, oh, when's the next up? When are you coming back? And I mean, I was playing, you know, games with. With my buddy and his wife's like, when are you asking when they're putting another episode out? And I'm like, all right, we're coming back soon. Don't worry. We're, we're back. Done. We're not done. We just needed a break. We are never going to be done. It's also hard to do, and, and other podcasters and other people that do similar things, and, and, and many things in life, you, you do so much of it, so much, like you just kind of burn out and you just need to reset and take a break, especially with you deep diving these cases week after week after week after week after week. It's like- It's good to get a break. It takes a little bit of a toll on you too. You're just like, all right, okay. I'm- well, I don't think it would take as much of a toll if I felt better, you know, in the, but I'm, I think I'm getting back in, into yeah, the, the swing of things where we've had conversations where we even kicked it back to every other week mm -hmm. because one, it's a high workload, but two, that was super helpful, but two, just the, the, the gravity and the, the deranged details 
a lot of stuff that we cover is just well, it wears on you. Right? It wears on you after week after week after week of just constantly talking about these horrific crimes and these things people do. So yeah, and one thing, and a lot of people would say that it's a cop out is doing the old timey cases, which I love. By the way, that's my jam. Those are your favorite historical cases. And I thought this today, spoiler alert, is going to be a historical case per se. And I thought that it would give us some reprieve and kind of ease us back in. But no, it, it's we're just diving right headfirst into the macabre. And like I said to you earlier, I was over here looking at the, I like the pop culture cases, right? So I was telling you yeah, how I was reading you like about, that. Um, anybody seen the movie Alpha Dog? Yeah. It's an older movie with uh, Emil Hirsch and Justin Timberlake. Yeah. I was telling you about the, I was reading about the real story behind that whole thing uh, and how it differed from the movie and all that kind of stuff. It was a real, it was actually a true story that's based off of. You're going to have to do an episode on that one day. It's a pretty crazy story. And side note, Emil Hirsch is a very underrated actor in my opinion. I watched a movie with him a couple of nights ago. It was the one where he was a morgue worker. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Autopsy of Jane Doe. Autopsy of Jane Doe. Yeah. His dad was the morgue He's amazing. He's like. He's fantastic. Just he's been phenomenal. in so many good movies. And he's just, like you said, he's just very underrated. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll do maybe Absolutely. I'll do one on that one one time because it's a pretty crazy story, actually. Well, enough babble. You ready? Let's do it. So this case has been covered by a few of our podcaster friends. Um, I think, and I I can't be hundred and ten percent sure, but first one coming to mind is Malice and Mocktails. Okay, I believe they did cover this, but. Um, Several of our listeners requested it. Most recently, um, Julie requested it. Shout out, Julie. So um, I wanted to, you know, give y'all what you asked for, especially since you all have been so patient with us. You deserve, <laughs> you deserve a reward. So today we will be discussing the 1927 Bath Consolidated School Bombing Massacre. Mm. School bombing slash massacre. Right. It's called both. It's called, yeah, I was going to say, it's been called both. It's also called the disaster, the Bath Consolidated Disaster. So. Because I don't think they knew what to call it back then. It's just, it's a mess is what it is. Tragic mess. Unfortunately, this day and age, we are all too familiar with school violence. So today we're going to go back in history to Bath, Michigan, and take a look at the worst school massacre in U.S. history. I'm sure you're like me, and it is a very little consolation to know that mass killings in schools have been happening for over a century. And this is an absolutely horrifying one, as they all are, of course. Absolutely. Puzzling enough, this bloodbath was perpetrated by a respected and admired member of Bath's small community. No. A man by the name of Andrew Kehoe. Which is a very common. Yeah. Unassuming, we've, we've right? We've talked about it so many times in so many different episodes. We always bring up, you know, Robert Baker, Robert, um, the Butcher Baker. The Butcher Baker. We yeah. always bring him up because he was such a prominent member in society and it's all of a sudden like. So oh, unassuming. Horrible human being. And they just leave these dual lives that no one knows until, you know, it spills over. At the end of Kehoe's attack on Bath's Consolidated School, over 40 people would be dead. 38 of those victims would be not just children, but small children. So who is Andrew Keogh? And what in the world were 
would persuade him to take the lives of innocent children of all people. I'd be interested to see if there's an answer to that because that's the underlying story with all the violence we see is why. Why are you, why do you pick these? Now, I, I have my reasons from a military law enforcement point of view, but still, it's... Well, today we're going to take a nice, hard, detailed look into Kehoe. I, I wanted to kind of take this a different angle and kind of pick him apart to see if we could um, like dissect it. him a little bit. I like it. I spent lots of time diving deep into his life, trying to sift through and find an inkling of what could have possibly motivated him to take such drastic measures to kill, of all people, innocent children. I'm not sure if we will leave this episode with more questions or answers, but one thing's for sure, we will be well-versed in the worst school bombing in U.S. history and the monster behind it. Before we get started, I'd like to read you a quote that we will come back to and address at the end of the episode. A quote that apparently held some level of importance to Andrew Kehoe, and I say that because it was displayed as a sign on his property. Okay. Quote, criminals are made, not born. End quote. A statement we often ponder here on Evil Pudding. So let's see if that's the case. In 1947, during the Great Famine, nearly one million immigrants fled Ireland to come to the U.S. Among them was a farmer from Wexford named Philip Keogh. He joined his parents in immigrating to the States from Ireland. He was just 17, I believe, at the time. 1947 or 1847? 1847. Did I say 19? Yeah. yeah. We're already screwing it up. Wait a second here. 1847. So Philip Keogh would father six daughters before his son, Andrew Philip Keogh, would come along on February 1st, 1872. The Keogh family lived in Tecumseh, Michigan at this time. Uh, Andrew moves to Bath later, but he grew up in Tecumseh. Not a whole lot is known about Andrew's early life. But as the firstborn son, Andrew would have occupied a very special place in the family. Especially with yeah. six sisters. He's the only boy. Oh, yeah. He, he would have been the male heir to the family name. Well, I mean, it was the 1800s, then. of course. Mm-hmm. And since he was born into a hardworking farming Irish family, he most likely would have had a very inflated sense of self. Like, all of this is yours one well, day. Well, yeah, like, I was about to say the And farm, it would be, the whole, yeah. All of it would be his and everyone else would be working on it when his dad was gone, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he probably would have had little patience for those who didn't conform to his own very strict Irish Catholic values, like he grew up with. That was just the way, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we are assuming, this is an assumption, but it's a safe one to make. It's pretty safe I would say, especially Catholics. with the person we're dealing with, right? Especially Irish Catholics in the 1800s coming up. And Pat can say that because he's an Irish Catholic. <laughs> yeah. One remarkable thing that I found was that Andrew's childhood coincided with what was known as the age of electricity. This is kind of cool. 
it was the era of Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla and their wizardry. Yep. They were superheroes. Where lights came into houses. Yes. And publications back then, they targeted children of the time. And those children just marveled at the endless possibilities of energy, electricity, mechanics, because they're, you know... Well, I mean, this Tesla is, was their hero. It is a huge advancement in human evolution to go from yeah. everything being done by hand to now you've got this automated source that does things for you, that mm-hmm. lights lights, that runs electronics, that runs machinery. Like, it's a huge, it's huge change in the world. Well, by all accounts, Andrew Keogh was somewhat of a prodigy when it came to this. He displayed a fascination and a talent for working with electricity, and he really did. He was very smart, very good at this. Not the first smart person we've seen do stuff like this. In fact, the Keogh family farm served as kind of a, quote, giant laboratory for Andrew. And that's what I read in a, a book that I used for one of the many books that I used for research. They said in all of them consistently, the Keogh farm was a giant laboratory for Andrew, period. Like he loved it. He, He's already drawn... Side note on that, he's already drawn like Ted Kaczynski vibes for me. Totally. I, I thought that too. Because one the of my evil favorite, genius. Yeah, one of my favorite things about him is if you ever seen the movie Google Hunting and they're mm-hmm. talking about it, he's like, hey, who's that brilliant guy? I think it was MIT that was doing quantum mathematics and something else. MIT. And, he's, yeah. and he threw his name out Harvard. there. It was either MIT or Harvard. 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 And they were like, oh, it was uh, Ted Kaczynski. And he's like, who the fuck is Ted Kaczynski? Like, the Unabomber. Didn't know that. <laughs> but, it's, but still, it's just yeah. these, these, it's interesting to me that these. Somewhat geniuses, like you said, evil geniuses. These guys are almost too smart for their own good that they can't. Well, Andrew could often be found, like as a child, toying around with new ideas and taking his father's like farm machinery and constructing crude electric powered gizmos to make it better. Like he was that smart as a kid. Really a prodigy. And that, I mean, that's same thing with that time and age, right? You're getting power and everything like that. And his dad's equipment's probably all handheld or horse drawn or, you know, mule drawn. Horse drawn, yeah. He's trying to have to use elbow grease. Yeah, he is. Automated. Oftentimes, he is depicted in books as a kind of, like we said, evil genius. And I'm not sure if that is altogether accurate, but he was, in fact, the head of his high school physics class. So he was by far no idiot. We can safely assume that. His former classmate and neighbor, I always like to hear quotes from actual people that knew them. That's crazy getting quotes from the 1800s. Yeah. His former classmate and neighbor, uh, a gentleman named F.W. Yates. (laughs) Why is it all the old timey names are initials? Initials. F.W. Yates would say of his time with Keogh in high school, quote, I was never able to become intimately acquainted with him. He went on to elaborate that their lack of communication was due to Keo's quote, distant and rather cool manner. So he's weird. We can, I'll, I'm just telling you, he was, he was weird. No, I figured. He was very odd. He's probably one of those kids that was so smart that he just lacks. Any common sense, any emotional, any emotional skills. maturity. I mean. Social just, skills are usually lacking on people that smart too, because they can't associate with normal people. Because You know what I mean? So. Kehoe definitely liked to keep to himself and tinker. Um, He had a definite proclivity for being alone, an introvert, if you will. 
However, that didn't mean that he didn't extend himself. This is what gets me. It's very odd. He did extend himself when it came to uh, his, quote, civic duty, something that he took very seriously, even as a teenager. Early on, he was a active participant in the American Farmers Club. And we're talking like a teenager. He was actively participating in this. Yeah, old school FFA. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm, I mean, I'm okay. something similar to that. Let me describe it. So the American Farmers Club movement sprang up after the Civil War as a way for farm families in rural areas to socialize. Because... When you live on a farm, your closest neighbor can be an hour away. Yeah, yeah, they mean miles. And you don't have telephones. You don't have internet. You don't You have snail mail and that's it, you know, walking. So it was just a social event, like let's say monthly, where everyone would get together and talk about whatever, have dinner, play games, just be together. Sit around, drink a beer, play some music. Of course, more serious matters were addressed at these events, like where taxpayer dollars were going. I was going to say, I'm sure they got political and became political preaching grounds. And And spoiler alert, this is something that Andrew would become very, very passionate about, as you will soon see. In fact, this is likely where young Andrew Keogh developed very strong opinions concerning where his taxpayer dollars were going. Okay. When Andrew turned 18, his mother, Mary, unfortunately passed away from a long progressive illness. It's unclear the 1800s of it all, what exactly she suffered from. Reports, well, no, reports describe it as a, quote, a disease of the nervous system. So maybe dementia, maybe... We're talking about the reports from the 1800s. That yeah, it's, it, right? it's hard to say. It could have been pneumonia. It could have been the flu. It could have been something they just didn't know what it was. Andrew stayed at his father's side on the farm after his mother passed, assisting in the farm work and livestock breeding, and of course, continuing his electrical experiments. Andrew's father remarried in 1898, a woman named Frances Murphy Wilder. And not long after that, Andrew left home for a bit. And not much is known about the years that Andrew was away from home, but um, we have census records to think what we do know about that time. It's probably about a 10-year, 8 to 10-year period. In the 1890s? He wasn't in London, was he? No. Okay. Records show that in, (laughs) well, 1900. Okay, you knew where I was going with that. Yeah, I did. Records show that in 1900, he lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan for a while, working as a dairyman. Like a milkman? I think so. And at some point, he was enrolled at Michigan State Agricultural College in East Lansing. Learn how to run the farm better. He also made his way to Iowa for a time where he worked as a lineman before moving to St. Louis, where he worked as an electrician for a city park. He's just basically running around learning. Yeah. That's what it seems like. And this is interesting. While he was in St. Louis, he apparently suffered a very serious head injury. Oh, no. What do you mean? That's crazy. So serious that he was in a partial coma for two months. If you're new here, we have this wild belief that- It's not even a wild belief. It's just- All 
I mean, it, it, it checks so it, far. Almost in almost every case we cover, in almost every serial killer or mass murder that we've talked about, there's the people some who, there's sort some head trauma, of head trauma, of the frontal temporal lobe, something. Yeah, but in general, there's just you know head trauma that we've covered from almost every single one of them from the ages of one to thirty. They had suffered some. So we have a theory here. It's nothing real, but we it's think, not proved. It's, we think there's some <laughs> sort of head trauma involved in the. It's a it's a Courtney Patrick. It's the damage of the brain that somehow changes their you know, morality or their their thought process. Impulsivity, impulse, impulse control. I'm not entirely sure what caused the head injury. We don't know. Some reports that I saw claimed that he fell, which may have happened if he was working on power lines as a lineman. Or if he's imagine an a very high fall, doing a ceiling fan or a- right. But either way. He was hurt very badly to the point where he was in a semi-coma for two months. That's major, in my opinion. Pretty messed up there. By 1910, Andrew made his way back home to Lenawee County, Michigan, where he moved back in with his father and stepmother back on his farm Mm -hmm. where he grew up. Right. And by then, his dad, who was nearly 80, and his stepmom had a nine-year-old daughter named Irene. Nine years old at 80. Can you imagine? <laughs> Poor kid. Never going to grow up with her parents around. So Keo was now a big brother. Andrew went oh, that's back. That's right. He was the youngest until that point. Wasn't he? I don't think he was the youngest, but he was the only boy for quite some time, okay. unless they had more boys after that. Andrew went back to working on his father's farm. He just went back to being employed, working for his dad on the family farm. Well, what else is he going to do? By now... Like I said, Andrew's dad was about 80. I'm not sure how old Francis, his stepmom, was. But she was probably up there. She wasn't much younger than Andrew's dad. And this is kind of where we see Andrew start to get a little shady. We haven't seen him. We haven't seen red flags, what we call red flags. So he has a head injury. Right? (laughs) So, okay. You're about to see a glaring one right now. Head injury happens. He comes back. Red flags. So Irene, his little sister, had a pet cat that she loved. Uh-oh. Well, Andrew just killed it. There it goes. I don't even have a buildup for it. He just didn't like it and killed it. There it goes. And he is always very proud of what he does. He doesn't, like, hide it. Some historians surmise that he maybe did this because he wasn't a fan of his little sister it's like a power play. Yeah, it was a power he play. He came back and there's a little kid. He's like, my house. It's hard to say, but we're going to see several instances, unfortunately, of Andrew mistreating animals. He was he was a dick. He was cruel. He's so cruel to animals especially. Just the weak, but right? I, Children, just, animals. But it's just whatever he has power over. But yeah. it's crazy. It's really crazy to me that he had no known instances of anything like this till the head injury. Until it, and it's true. And all of a sudden, he just... He, Nothing. You know, because I'm assuming his other older sisters are all gone and probably married or have their own families or left the house. So it's probably just his dad, his stepmom, and the little kids. So he came back and was like, you know, fuck y'all. My house. Dominance. And just killed the- Is she going to get the farm was, after well, y'all she die? she probably getting all the attention because yeah. he's been gone for 10 years. And get this. Okay. A little story time here. <laughs> Set, picture it. September 17th. It. It's a normal, sunny... Sunday afternoon, Frances, Andrew's stepmom, had been out gathering hazelnuts with her nine-year-old daughter. No big deal. Sounds Just glorious. Nice I know, it does. <laughs> it's like a painting, <laughs> Bob Ross. 
And she had just come back in, and she was getting ready to cook dinner for the evening. Okay. Very usual behavior on a Sunday afternoon. Well, the family had a fancy gasoline stove. It was a cooking appliance that ran on, we all have that now. I mean, not all, but a lot of us have that now. But back then, it ran on very crude gasoline that was stored in an overhead tank connected to the oven down below by a pipe. Yeah. It was a very newfangled, progressive thing for the time. I think only wealthier people had that back then. So Frances did as she had done many times before. She struck a match to light the stove, and the stove exploded, engulfing Francis in flames. Boy, me, yeah. Andrew ran into the kitchen and apparently, according to one biographer, just stood and watched his stepmother burn for a while before grabbing a pail of water and pouring it over her. Mm. But all that did was just cause the burning oil to spread. Yeah, because it's oil-based, yeah. Her skin was literally liquefying. Francis died a horrifically agonizing, slow death that took days. It took days for her to pass. And it was just Mm. constant pain for that poor woman. No one deserves that. I'm sorry. I don't care who you are. And a freak accidental death at that. Or was it? Was it an accident? See, there was actually a lot of controversy surrounding the gasoline stove at the time. Okay. Because it was new. They caused hundreds of accidents. And unfortunately, accidents just like this. You know? I mean, newspaper articles, I read many. You're, I mean, you're Freak. storing a liquid combustible above And it's a the, new Above a flame source. It basically is just a pipe and maybe some fancy yep. new patented or pending patent valve or something. You know what I mean? So at the time, it was nothing for people to be like, she's just another victim of one of these newfangled, new modern devices. Well, it's happening Of the devil. It's happening frequently. <laughs> so why not yeah. chalk it up to the same thing? In fact, her official death certificate reads, and I quote, uh, burn to death from gasoline stove, mm. end quote. Only later, when everyone would learn what Andrew Kehoe was capable of, would people start to speculate that while Frances was out gathering nuts that September evening with her daughter, Andrew, knowing that his stepmother would be cooking their evening meal, had rigged the stove to explode. Trust me, he's very capable of it, but we're, we just would never know for sure. But all that's gone. Oh, yeah. And they didn't walk in there and do a full arson investigation. No, to see what caused. Not. You know what I mean? Like nowadays yeah. they would go in, see what caused the malfunction, see what – they weren't doing that back then. No. About eight months after his stepmother's death, Andrew, quote, <laughs> I hate this, took a wife. I Just hate it. I hate it one. when they say that. <laughs> Like he was burdened, so he just like grabbed he was one. Picking a donut out of a dozen donuts. <laughs> like I took a wife. He's at the store. He's like, hey, you know what? I need a wife. <laughs> he was forty years old at the time when he married. That's um, that's fairly old for marrying back then in 1912. Well, that's fairly old. They got for married. 1912. They got married in 1912. Yeah, fifties or sixties. So he was forty. 
and his wife was 37. That's old back then. But he was a weirdo, so he probably didn't have too many women beating down his door and biting for his infections. Also, depending on the ruralness of where they lived, it might be hard to meet people to marry. Yeah. Anyways, his wife's name was Ellen Agnes Price, and she went by Nellie, which I think is really cute. Nellie. She was 37, and she came from, just like Andrew, an Irish Catholic family. The couple settled into the Keogh farmstead, where Andrew continued to work on his father's land, and Nellie helped to care for Andrew's little sister, Irene. So she kind of served as a surrogate mother for Irene, who is now without a mother because her mother burned to death, right? Right, and her father's 80-something years old. Mm -hmm. So they're basically raising He might have died by this. I couldn't find out if he had passed by now. 80 in 1910 is old. They became regulars at the Tecumseh Catholic Church, but Andrew stopped attending when he was asked by the priest to contribute a $400 donation to help erect a new church building. He said, you need to tithe. He was like, I'm out. Andrew said, hell no. (laughs) Then stopped going to church altogether. (laughs) They want my money. I'm not going. Yeah. He apparently took a lot of offense to anyone asking for money. So much so that he ordered the priest off his property and threatened him with physical violence. (laughs) He's about his money. I mean, I can't fault a man for that. It was... (laughs) joking. I was going to say, we would (laughs) never do that. (laughs) It was also noted that Andrew was becoming increasingly paranoid. He had mounting suspicions that all of his neighbors were out to take advantage of him. And they, everyone was after his money. He was like Scrooge. He was like Ebenezer Scrooge. Everyone's out for my money. (laughs) Everyone wants my money. He was stingy with his money, to say the very least. He was a penny pincher. And he was kind of a con artist, too. One time, Keo purchased eight steers from a neighbor, and then he pastured them, which means he set them out to feed yeah. in a field of wet clover. I know to a layman, someone who didn't grow up in a farming community, <laughs> you're probably like, What? Who cares? Well, it is a cardinal rule of animal husbandry that you should avoid at all costs turning cattle in a wet clover field or alfalfa field or anything like that when they're hungry. You just don't do that. It'll kill them. Yeah. So I'm saying it's toxic or poisonous, isn't it? And Keo knew this. Everyone, especially back then, knew this especially Especially in bath you have like 200 families in bath michigan every single one of those families are farm yeah you know this yeah you know the ins you know yeah especially at 40 years old so all of this after of, of course all of the cattle died so keo went to the seller and demanded half of what he lost on the steers. So he demanded half. Of course, the seller refused. The seller was a neighbor. And because the seller knew that the cattle that he sold Keo was completely healthy. Yeah. <laughs> and this pissed Andrew off and he stopped speaking to that neighbor altogether. But even if he tried to con him, what is he trying to con? He's losing money. He thought he could wrangle him out of that half. But he would still lose money. 
and not have cattle. Like, I don't understand the logic there. I also think, honest, and this is my opinion, and you can tell me what you think at the end of the episode. I think he enjoyed hurting animals. Hurting animals. Not hurting. Hurting. Not hurting. Hurting. Like, torturing them. Yeah, no. We're killing them. We're getting vibes already. Yeah. He's already killed a couple animals. So, let's move on. Andrew didn't make too many friends in Tecumseh. It's safe to say. But it's okay. He wouldn't be there long. Because in 1917, Nellie's uncle passed away. His wife, Nellie. Mm -hmm. And her uncle left an 80-acre farm in Bath, Michigan. Andrew and Nellie jumped at the chance to move into the absolutely gorgeous three-story home and take on the farm duties over there in Bath. She's got a farm upgrade, yeah. Yeah. The market value of the property was around $12,000 at the time. And Andrew arranged to put down half. So he put down six k. Then he'd pay the rest in monthly installments of $360 per month to the executors of the estate, not the bank, which were Nellie's Aunt Julia and um, Aunt Julia was the widow of Nellie's uncle. So Nellie's uncle, that's the wife that passed away. And I I just was doing the math. It's like $300,000. Nowadays, dollars in 1917. So they had to pay mortgage payments to um, Nellie's aunt and then Art Nellie's aunt's attorney. Okay. So they got a good deal. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Andrew moved swiftly to get rid of his old farm. But he, I mean, he put it right up for sale, but it took several years for him to find a buyer. But they did. And in 1919, Andrew officially made the fateful move to the then very small, I'm not sure what it is today, but back then it was very small, farming community of Bath, Michigan. And it was here that he became super involved with the community in Bath, putting his handyman and mechanical skills to good use. And I was just looking it up. It is 2,000 people now, or 2010, so. Now. It's still a very, oh, in 2010. 2010. So it's very small. It's still. little. It's a little farm town. Yeah. Well, one neighbor named Ann Rounds would later say of Andrew Keogh, quote, any favors we asked of him, he was perfectly willing to do and seemed anxious to be called on to do it. If anything was wrong, he'd come to our place and fix it. There couldn't be a better neighbor than him, end quote. And it always kills me. When you get all these quotes from even nowadays or old timey, when people would say things about the other person, like I'm, it shocks me that 99% of the quotes weren't like, fuck that dude. That dude's an asshole. Like, I hope he rotten's in hell. Like, fuck, because he just killed a shit ton of people. Yeah. They're always like, he was so sweet. Like, no, he wasn't. Nobody did you not, ever. Did you not just see this? Yeah. But I, I'm sure, like, poor Anne never in a million years could have imagined that they're trying to convey that they had no idea. Well, she also back then, you know, we didn't, they didn't have internet TV, any of that. She probably had never heard of somebody doing doing anything like this. Yeah, that's true. Small towns like that. And so when this happens, she's literally in shock. Like she probably has PTSD. Yeah, I get that. But just part of me is always just like, why is everyone not like 
fuck that guy. Like, no. Yeah. It's not okay. Like, he's a horrible human being. But no. I mean, I, we I are. Get yeah. I get that because they're probably not never heard of something like this. So they're probably trying to convey how I would never have suspected. Poor Anne's this. trying to work through it. So, yeah, they're just literally trying to understand <laughs> and grieve. Give Anne a moment. <laughs> I'm sorry, Anne. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> she's 10. She knows she's a Nellie and Andrew joined a social club where they would play cards with other couples. And the only complaint there ever was about Andrew was that he was, quote, <laughs> severe. <laughs> like an intense dude? <laughs> Apparently, he was a stickler for following the rules. And he would get angry and chew people out easily, like, if you didn't stick to the rules of the card game. One of those. Okay, he's one of those. Like, yeah, no yeah. We've fun. All, we've all played cards that kind of bent the rules. And there's always that one or a game, and there's that one person like you can't do that. It's not allowed. You're like, no, we're just playing a game, bro. Like, he, he, yeah, he was a stick in the mud. And one odd thing about him, at least to me, this is just odd to me. No, I don't think anyone else has said much about this, but I'm gonna say something. So if you look at a picture of Andrew Keo. And you're going to see one on the little icon that we do for the episode. You would think that he is some kind of very successful, not just a banker, but a Wall Street investment banker. Okay. He always dresses himself in not just a suit, but it's a three-piece suit. It's the always watch like with the chain. Yeah, I mean it, it's crazy. He has polished shoes. He wears hats. And he keeps himself so well-groomed. Like, you would never know that at this time, he didn't even own a vehicle, and he rode his tractor around town everywhere Okay, that he went. Well, he's a penny pincher, so why is he going to spend the money on a vehicle? Yeah. I mean, he will eventually. But, yeah. Like, he literally rode on a tractor all day and worked on the farm. And the moment that he sweat or had an oil stain on his shirt... He'd run home and change into a new three-piece suit. Clearly all about image. So ridiculous. That's weird to me. Because you know this is a farming community. Like people are probably in overalls. I mean, they probably dress yeah, very nice to go. Him, one, it screams he's got to be, it's an image thing. And two, it screams like he's got to be like better than everybody else. Better than everyone. Right? Yeah. I can't absolutely. be dirty like everyone else. I'm above <laughs> these people. That kind of mentality. Dig. Anyways. And although most of the community at first, like Andrew for the most, they liked Andrew for the most part, he wasn't popular with everyone per se. Yeah, no shit. Okay. So this is nuts, Pat. <laughs> According to Mrs. Lulu Hart, a neighbor of the Keos, and Mrs. Lulu actually drove Nellie, Andrew's wife, to church because remember, Andrew doesn't go to church. Nope. They asked him for money. <laughs> He, uh, she drove Nellie to church every Sunday. Well, Nellie, Andrew's wife, had a little pet dog. uh A fox terrier that she loved dearly. That was her baby. Well, Lulu said that the dog came up missing one day yeah. in March of 1920. So no we're, way. We're in 1920 now. Animal went missing around him? And she was helping her friend Nellie look for the dog. Well, Lulu, frantically looking for the dog, went back to the farm one day, and she happened to see Andrew out working, like, in the field, 
So she asked Andrew if by chance, hey, did you see the dog yet today at all? Nothing. I've been helping look for it. He replied very matter-of-factly, quote, it was burying a, burying a bone beside my road fence and I shot the damn nuisance, end quote. Just shot her dog. That's his wife's dog. It's not even like a stray random like wolf or whatever. It's just annoying is what it is to him. And after that, Lulu Hart no longer drove Nellie to church anymore. She, oh, and neither. She'd be like, you can get someone else to take you, bitch. I'm like, I'm picking my boy up. I'm like, yo, what's up, buddy? <laughs> what's wrong? You're missing it. You're missing your dog. We're running around looking for it. Come back. And his wife's like, I shot the damn thing. I'm like, peace out, bro. You can call Uber. They'll come over here for a fee. <laughs> I'm not coming back. <laughs> That's insane. He's jealous of. He has to be the center of attention. That's what I feel like. Like, I'm not diagnosing anything. I'm just saying, but he feels like he has to be the center of attention. The three-piece He suits, did the same thing to the, his sister's cat. His sister's cat when he came mm-hmm. back. That I mean, he's just kind of, good or bad, he wants to be the center of attention. He doesn't honestly care how he gets there. And this is equally as bad, if not worse, to be honest. Um, on another occasion, Lulu, Miss Lulu's uh, husband... His name was David Hart. He came uh, He came by the Keogh farm on an errand, and he saw Andrew, quote, driving his horses into a froth. Basically, what he means is he was, Andrew was overexerting them. He was having the horses drag a manure spreader and pushing them past their breaking point. That night, one of the overworked, horses died apparently because the next day David Hart said that he saw Andrew Keogh hauling away a dead horse caucus and casually mentioned hey Andrew I see you've had some bad luck with your horse right just yeah sorry like, buddy. that's crazy and Andrew replied quote yes damn him he ought to have been killed years ago. He didn't pull. We had a mix-up. When I got through with him, he was dead. So in other words, Andrew confessed openly to beating his horse to death for not performing. Up to par. Yeah. Up to par. Yeah, wow. Yeah. We'll see worse later, but. Oh, I know that, obviously. but So. Andrew started racking up a few enemies here and there. It's hard to believe with his shining personality, but he did. (laughs) But he was still quite popular in the community, if you can believe it. He became very, very active civically. He served as town clerk in Bath. I can't help but wonder if that was due to just Nellie had grown up in Bath. That's where her family lived. Maybe, but I, I think I think he, he I think he really does pride himself on his civic duty and, and his appearance. Well, and not his, just that, but people yeah. are like, this dude actually he's weird. He does some fucked up shit, but he really cares about the town. Maybe mm-hmm. you know what I mean. That's what he sounds like. He gives off that vibe, like he's going to fight for the town no matter what. You just don't like him at the bar on Saturday. Well, the National Farm Bureau was founded in 1919, and Andrew. 
of course, volunteered to be the head. And just two years later in 1921, he was elected to the board of directors. But just seven months later, he quit the organization to focus all of his energy on something that he was truly passionate about. The very brand newly built consolidated school. I also think with his ego and his need to be the top center, Mm -hmm. I think because he wanted to be the head and join the board, he probably left because he's not the guy. He's just a group of people. Well, when I say consolidated school, I know everyone's like, what is that? (laughs) All it is, is it's an all in one. So there was one school in Bath. They kind of consolidated an elementary, a junior high and a high school. So it's, First grade through 12th is what this one was. Yeah. And it provided education for all. It was a fairly new type of school. By 1922, there were roughly 12,000 consolidated schools across the U.S. I went to a private school that was much like that when I was well, growing also, up. A lot of the towns like this one, the smaller towns, mm-hmm. they were all consolidated schools because you just don't have the volume of people to get teachers and buildings to have a high school of four people, a junior high of six, and an elementary school of nine. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't make sense. Well, the school is a great thing to have, but to build such a structure, such a, sorry, my voice, such a structure, it cost some money, right? That's what I'm saying. So they added on to one of the schools in Bath to make this grandiose building, right? Um, The school is great. But with a new school meant higher taxes. Okay? Uh-oh. Okay. And to make matters worse, Patrick, it was the 1920s. Most people think of the Great Depression uh, happening in the 30s. But. Wasn't it 27 that started? It actually happened, but it was but five the to truth six years is, in the making? Well. Or 10 the, years in the making? Yeah. So, but the truth is that many American farmers suffered nearly a decade earlier, starting in 1920. And one of those farmers was Andrew Keogh. Well, the depression doesn't just happen overnight. It's called the farm crisis right, back in the, the 20s. Yeah. And that it, was what led to the Great it Depression. It was the Great Depression just a, a bit earlier. It was what led to it because mm-hmm. you know, all that farm research, resources, everything got jacked up. Prices went through the roof. All the, everything went up. Pat, by the spring of 1921, Keogh was in financial straits with this farm crisis. I bet. By 1922, he wasn't even able to make his mortgage payment. He had to request an extension from his own, what was it? Aunt-in-law. Aunt-in-law, yeah. (laughs) As a result, Keogh was highly pissed off at how the school board was managing the public's money. So in order to exert some control, right, as Keogh does, Keogh decided to run for a spot on the school board in 1924. There's a newfangled consolidated school, so I'm going to go for a spot on the school board. I need to be in charge of shit. Mm -hmm. Taking my damn money. And y'all, he was elected for a term of three years. He served at the Bath School Board. He served as the Bath School Board treasurer. That's I was wondering. Perfect for him. He wanted to take care of the money. There you go. Because that way, if they're taking too much taxes and their bank account's high, I couldn't find. I wonder if that's what he ran for. I guarantee it is because he wants to know why they're charging him more, why his taxes went up. So he wants to see their finances to see if they have a ton of money that they're taking. You know what I mean? Like he's just 
And let me introduce you to Keo's arch nemesis, Bath Consolidated School Superintendent Emery Hike, I think is how you say his okay. name. How would you say this? H U Y C K. Hike? Mm mm. I want to get his name right. Hike. He deserves my respect. So we're spending way too much time just butchering his dude's name. I'm going to say Hike. Emery Hike. Good guy. And I'm so sorry if I'm butchering your name. <laughs> so it's safe to say that they were not friends. Okay. Whatsoever. Uh, he was the superintendent of the new consolidated right. school. He was very young. I want to say he was 27, 28 years okay. old. Andrew hated Emery. And he would spend his time serving on the school board trying to get the other members to overrule this poor guy and just try to cut his paycheck and try to cut the janitor's paycheck. And I mean, it was just, it was a mess. And Emery in turn began to hate Andrew. Along with serving as treasurer for the consolidated school, Andrew also volunteered as sort of the unofficial handyman of the school. Okay. Which allowed him to set up shop in the school's basement. Oh. So seeing Andrew around the school at any given hour wasn't an odd thing. Uh-huh. And I, I know you can see where this is going. Yeah, I see where it's going, but at the time it's like, yeah, no, it's whatever. So that brings us to our next topic of discussion. Patrick. I know that this is going to be your being in the military, being in law enforcement. I had a lot of questions with this, and I know this is why you were privy to the topic of discussion today, because I had to ask you about this. Uh, We're going to talk about a substance that Andrew was obsessed with and something that he would be eventually storing in that school basement, unfortunately. Okay. It's called pyrotol. Okay. What is pyrotol? Yeah. You want me to answer you or you got the answer already? Well, I'll give you my once over and then you can chime in. Okay. okay. So back in 1924, pyrotol, which is a low-grade explosive, began being ma- manufactured from leftover military gunpowder from the Civil War, right? World War One. Was it World War One? In the 1920s? Yeah. Oh. Duh. It was 1917. Okay. And all that was sold to farmers looking for a relatively, quote, quote, <laughs> safe and cheap way to clear their fields. Very common, guys. That's how they did it. And still do it, to be honest. Not just, yeah, no, it's tanner right now is the, the one you can buy at any feed store. Pyrotol, it's a compound of smokeless powder and sodium nitrate, and it came in a wax-dipped cartridge, and they were kind of grouped together. So it looked seriously just like dynamite, like identical to a stick of dynamite. However, it was exponentially cheaper than dynamite back then. Um, For example, back then it would cost a farmer $28 in dynamite. I'm not sure how much that was back in the 20s. I'm sure that was a lot. A lot. hundred dollars, a couple hundred dollars. Um, but what would cost you only $28 in dynamite would only cost you $7 with 
with pyrotol. Right. Not bad. That's a good deal. But yeah, you go ahead, Pat. What do you have to say? No, I was going to say it's very common to what people see the Tannerite nowadays. Tannerite's another one of those. Uh, I've never heard of Tannerite. Have you ever seen those kids that shoot a fridge across a, out in the country and it explodes? Yeah. It's Tannerite. But you could buy it at feed stores and places like that because it's very similar. The only difference with- Oh my God. The they sell with, that um, just in feed stores? That's why they were getting this kind of- Because it's used to clear the land in, yeah. in demolitions. And, yeah, know, it's rocks farm. And all that yeah. kind of stuff. It's used for farm work. Pirates, if I'm not mistaken, though, was uh, sometimes it was mixed with dynamite. And a lot of times they would take one stick of dynamite and like wrap it together instead of a cluster of dynamite, like you'd see in the movies, there's like five of them stuck together. They would use like one or two and then put pyrotol with it. Because pyrotol, if I'm correct on it, it was an incendiary. More than more than a dynamite is just going to blow up and obliterate everything. Whereas the pyrotol, if I'm correct, because it's gunpowder, because the gunpowder. It's more like a, a like a napalm style, like a flash fire. Jesus. So, because its intent is smokeless. To, yeah. Well, its intent is to clear the shrubbery or the. It's smokeless. Yeah. So it's basically just a big fireball mm-hmm. uh, versus dynamite, which was just like you didn't want to blow holes in your land. You just wanted to use that as a detonator to just send fire everywhere. I mean, Out of curiosity, can you look up how much pyrotol was sold back in the 1920s? Like amounts of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking it up. I mean, Ben looking it up. You can't find like how much. Yeah. I don't think they kept detailed records of things like that. It wasn't really regulated or checked. It was not because it was sold in just willy nilly in right. farming. And I saw a couple of different versions of it where it's like you can't really regulate how much was made depending on if you used dynamite or didn't use mm-hmm. dynamite or this, that. Because everyone thing. used it. Right. It's well, crazy. It's, it's farming. It's just like, like I said, it's like, just like farming now is you got to clear rocks. You got to clear. Yeah, you got to. You gotta blow things up. It's a lot easier than taking an axe to it or something. It's crazy. Well, you could buy it in big wooden crates, and each crate contained 150 sticks and it weighed about 50 pounds. Well, in 1925, a neighbor a neighbor of Andrew Keo's, a man named Job, or is it Job? J O B. Was it Job? Job. Job. Job Slate received a call from Keogh saying, hey, I need a ride to Jackson to pick up some Pyrotol. Andrew, at that time, didn't have his own truck. He will eventually get a truck. But Mr. Slate wouldn't have thought that this was strange because Pyrotol and Dynamite was just how they cleared their fields back then. Everyone did. So Mr. Slate obliged, and he gave Keogh a ride where Keo purchased 10 boxes, if you're wondering, that's 500 pounds of pyrotol from a Farm Bureau agent. Slate even helped Keo unload the crates back at Keo's farm. Little did he know, he was helping a madman unload the very weapon he would use to forever destroy the small farming community of Bath. Hard to live with. Yeah, but he's just helping a fellow farmer who, who needs would have a thought, ride. You know, it's hard to say when he purchased all this pyrotol in 1924, mm-hmm. what exactly his intentions were. However, in 1925, less than a year later, Andrew's life began to take a huge nosedive straight to hell. Okay. 
I'll say maybe this is the catalyst, you know? Okay. Well, <laughs> it feels was, like we're at a breaking point almost anyway. Yeah. So he was up for re-election for town clerk. He lost. Okay. He was humiliated. Absolutely Well, because he prides petrified. himself on his reputation and how people look at him. He decided to run after that for justice of the peace. Like, oh, I'll show them I'll run for justice of the peace. Yeah, right? I'll be the sheriff. I'll be the head of law enforcement. He lost. Overwhelmingly. Yeah. He lost that one. And pe- I think people were starting to kind of catch on to how weird he is. and like there's something wrong with his dude. Yeah, there's something off with him. And to top it all off, his wife, Nellie, had begun to get very, very sick. It was thought that she was suffering from tuberculosis. Okay, yep. Yeah. So she was in and out of the hospital quite often. And Andrew's financial state was in shambles. He hadn't made his monthly mortgage payments, Patrick, in four years. Something that the bank would never put up with. However, I think because of the financial farming he, crisis, though. Well, no, he made his payments not to the bank. He made it to his the lawyer aunt uh, or Nellie's aunt and his aunt's attorney, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And although it was his wife's family who he ho- owed the money to, they had about enough, and they were now threatening to foreclose. On Andrew's property. And yeah. they were like, you know what? In fact, they even issued a foreclosure letter. Dude, you haven't paid us in four years. They issued a letter Good. to try to, you but know, peg him on. So in November of 1926, it couldn't have been a good sign that Andrew used what little money he had to purchase his own pickup truck and to drive to Lansing, Michigan, where he would purchase two huge boxes of dynamite, procuring even more firepower than he already had. Well, remember I told you a lot of times it's made with dynamite because the dynamite is the actual explosive catalyst mm-hmm. and pyrotol is the, the incendiary part of it. So you need the dynamite to really make it work the way you want. Let's talk about the days. We were talking about the years leading up to the bombing. Yeah, right. Let's talk about the actual days. We want to see where this dude's head's at because it's not in a good place. Right now it's not in a good place. So, I think it also shows the level of audacity that this man had. <laughs> in May of 1927, the month that the bombing would take place, Keo made a trip to Lansing, Michigan and purchased what's called a hotshot battery. Have you heard of that? Isn't it like a group of batteries? Yeah. So it's four batteries in one. Okay. Connected all together that generates an electric spark meant to help kickstart an engine. Kind of like a jump on an engine, yeah. but in a battery. Yeah. That probably sounded super stupid, but... No. I Googled it and I was like, what's that? And <laughs> I just regurgitated. I've just, heard it. I've just heard it before, so I just... I didn't know it was used to kickstart a bat, like to kickstart a car. Yeah, it, it has like a spark to it that does the same as jumping. I yeah, think ca- every- like cables. Right, and to everybody else, it's like that's not a big deal that he bought that. But when you're hearing him buying t- the uh, the pyrotol dynamite, now he's buying this. You're like, like what are you doing, son? What are you making there, guy? That same week, that same week at two in the morning, a woman, Mrs. Hall was her name. She uh, lived 
very close to the Bath Consolidated School, mm-hmm. about a mile and a half away. Well, she witnessed Andrew Keogh carrying what she thought to be several large crates of potatoes into the school in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. Yeah, that's not potatoes. Odd. But maybe she thought he was stocking the kitchen for school lunches. Like, that's my first thought. But you also had said earlier. Because he's always there. He's the handyman. He's always in and out of that school at random hours. And this is important. Nellie, Andrew Keogh's wife, had gone into the hospital for yet another surgery. And she had been staying with her sister in Lansing, Michigan, to recuperate for a bit. On Monday, May 16th, two days before the bombing, Andrew went and picked up his ailing wife, still recovering from surgery, and brought her home. Typical. On the 17th, Nellie's sister called to check on Nellie, you know, to see how she's doing. Well, Andrew answered the phone and said, Nellie's not here. She got really lonely being here all by herself. So she went to stay with some friends in Jackson, Michigan, and I'll pick her up on Thursday. What? She was barely able to function. And like, why would she just decide she's That's lonely? Really yeah, it's weird, right? So <laughs> yeah. Nellie's sister's like, mm, that's weird, but I'll call back that's Thursday, right? Weird, dude. Okay. So Nellie's sister, she's. She has a bad taste in her mouth. And perhaps the most audacious move of all, in my opinion, the day before the bombing, the day, 24 hours, Andrew Keogh was asked by a first grade teacher at the Bath Consolidated School. Her name was Bernice Sterling. She called him up because they did have phones at that time. And she asked if he would be able, if she would be able to bring her class to a grove on his property for an end of the year class picnic. To which Andrew Keogh wholeheartedly replied, absolutely. Yes. But make sure you do it. Like. Today. Today. And she was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. So. One biographer that I read, his name was Monty Ellsworth. I think he was actually a neighbor of Andrew's during that time. He speculates. I think he would know. He says, I suppose that he wanted the children to have a little fun before he killed them. End quote. Oh. And guys, that brings us to the day of the absolutely horrific bombing. And I'm going to, I have, like, I just want to get this out. So I'm just going to go ahead and give y'all a trigger warning. There is some. We knew this. Fucked upness <laughs> here in this episode. Um, okay. You ready? Yeah. Wednesday, May 18th, 1927. The last day of the school year at Bath Consolidated School. The very last day, they were having final exams for the 7th through 12th grade. Andrew got up early and drove himself into town to drop off a mysterious box for delivery at the American Railway Express, 
We'll come back to that later. I'm just letting you know his timeline. We'll get back to that. After he did that, he returned to the school, to the basement of the school where he sets up shop, right? It wouldn't have been odd for him to be there at all. At precisely 9.30 a.m., Bath School principal, 26-year-old Floyd Huggett, rang the gong to signal the official start of the last day of school. Fifteen minutes passed, and at precisely 9.45 a.m., a hidden alarm inside the basement of the school went off triggering a huge explosion that could be heard and felt from farms miles and miles away. Through her window one and a half miles away from the Bath Consolidated School, Mabel Ellsworth felt the earth shake. She ran to her window where she could see a big cloud of white dust come up from the school. She states later that she could hear the children scream. She cried out to her husband, quote, My God, the school is blown up. But meanwhile, her husband had his attention elsewhere. On another travesty, the Keough Farm. It too had been bombed and was up in flames. I didn't see that one coming, to be honest with you. (laughs) So we have two bombing sites, the school and the Kehoe farm. We have a lot of ground to cover. So let's begin with the school, shall we? Yep. It's not going to be nice. 250 students were in attendance on this day. And for any of the first responders who came to school after they heard the explosion, what greeted them was a scene of destruction that looked as though it had, quote, come from a newsreel footage of war-ravaged Europe, end quote. Right. And that time they're referring to World War One. Yeah. The school had been, and I'll post pictures of it, it was originally a T-shaped building, And what had once been the ground floor was now a mass of rubble. The roof had completely collapsed onto the floor. And in that mess of wood, metal, and concrete were the school's youngest children along with their teachers. See, the north wing was the section of the school that took the biggest hit, which unfortunately is the area that housed the youngest kids attending class at the time. The South Wing had been spared from the destruction, and we'll get to that. Um, And that was the area of the school that housed grades 7 through 12. So 7th graders, what, 14 through 18? Yeah. Ages 14 through 18, yeah. Superintendent, you're familiar with his name, Emery Hike, was in the 7th to 12th grade South Wing during the explosion, and he joined his students on the roof of that wing to try to flag down help. Fortunately, 
most of the older children survived the blast, which is wonderful. So glad. A desperate rescue effort immediately got underway, and men and women, fathers and mothers, were desperately trying to dig their children out from the rubble with their bare and soon-to-be bloodied hands. Guys, I have several harrowing, heartbreaking stories that I read and I would like to share with you, and I wish I could share them all, but I have narrowed it down to just two. The first of which is about third grader Doris Elaine Johns. Her mother lived just one block away and was one of the, if not the, first parent to arrive at the school after the explosion. As Mrs. Johns neared the entrance, she was struck by the sight of her daughter, clearly deceased, hanging by the legs from a pile of masonry. As she struggled to figure out what was happening in the first place, she struck with the sight of her daughter hanging dead. Another story that struck me was that of Mr. C. Chapman, who had rushed from the fields and started clawing with his bare hands at a pile of rubble where he figured that his son would be. From underneath the rubble, he heard the voice of his nine-year-old son named Russell Chapman say reassuringly, I'm all right, father, but get me out of here real quick. By the time Mr. Chapman reached his son, it was too late. His child had died. His neck had been nearly severed from a fallen beam. It's tragic and infuriating. One by one, the bodies of children were exhumed from the rubble and laid in rows on a nearby grassy knoll that would soon become known as Hospital Hill, just north of the school. Eventually, about 45 minutes after the bombing, police and all the fire departments of the surrounding counties would show up. Upon entry into the school's basement, Captain John O'Brien of the Lansing Police Department and William Clock of the Ingram County Sheriff's Department found several sticks of pyrotol protruding from some broken plaster. The sticks had several wires running to an unknown, unknown source. And this is infuriating and heartbreaking, but we can understand why they did it. Police halted the rescue efforts so that they could clear the building. Orders were given for all rescue work to be halted, and the perimeter of the disaster was roped off despite the wild pleas of grief-stricken parents who were literally in the midst of digging up their babies, calling for them. I can't imagine, Patrick. (laughs) It's just so awful. Upon further inspection, investigators found that the wires coming from the pyrotol sticks led to over, get this, 300 additional sticks of pyrotol, all of which had not exploded. They also found 10 burlap sacks of gunpowder and 200 204 sticks 
of what was called Hercules dynamite planted throughout the building between the ceiling and the basement. The wires all connected to two hot shot batteries that we talked about. Right. And a very crude timing device contrived from an alarm clock set for 945. And by the grace of God and some faulty wiring, most of the dynamite, most of the dynamite that Kehoe had spent weeks planting had failed to detonate altogether. Okay. Those high school kids in the upper grades, I mean. Yeah, it's the other building. Can you imagine being a parent and learning that? All in all, it's estimated that Keo had planted, you ready for this? 504 pounds of explosives, enough to take down an entire village, I think we can say. It's a lot. Much less a school. After the building was cleared and deemed safe, rescue efforts continued Workers had come from nearby slaughterhouses all around with ropes that they were using to hoist up large chunks of roofing from on top of these children and teachers. Just the whole community was involved. I bet. And while all this was going on, guess who pulls up in his pickup truck? Andrew Keough. Seriously? Yeah. What's happening, guys? The audacity, right? The superintendent, Emery Hike, and Keo's arch nemesis. Emery approached Keo's truck, and what happened in those next moments are very unclear. Some say that Keo reached for a shotgun, and some say that Keo had no weapon at all. But what is known without dispute is that Keo had explosives on him. The whole truck went up in a blast, and the men surrounding it went in every direction. The Lansing State Journal would later report, quote, body parts hanging in tree branches and in the green grass for a considerable area, end quote. Keho's body was hurled 100 feet away, and he had to be ID'd by a piece of his skull, which carried a small patch of what was known to be his his gray hair that belonged to him. His intestines were found lodged on the steering wheel of the demolished vehicle. I say this because a bystander from a neighboring town that came to see what was going on they came to like partake in the macabre scene and they would take a piece of that intestine hanging from his steering wheel and place it inside a mason jar filled with alcohol to sell at a later date. Oh. Also killed in that tertiary explosion was Mr. Glenn Smith and his father-in-law, Nelson McFerrin. Their only crime was being too near the detonation site on that day as they tried to assist in rescue efforts, probably for a family member, if I had to guess. That's crazy. And finally, the final victim of that explosion was Kehoe's intended target 
Emory Hike. As a state journal would say, Hike was reduced to a terrible hunk of blood, bone, and hair, bearing some likeness to a human body. End quote. Altogether, 40 patients would be brought to the Sparrow and St. Lawrence hospitals before the day was done. Three adults and 37 boys and girls, soon to be 48, 38. And while the injured lay in the hospital, the dead lay in an increasingly long row on the grassy knoll. Later on, their bodies would be carried off to the village town hall, which would serve as a temporary morgue until they could later be moved to an undertaking establishment. Keogh is gone, but the ramifications of his scorched earth campaign are far from over, I would say. Remember, there's still his farm. Yeah. The question started to arise throughout the war-torn community of Bath. Where is Nellie Keogh? Yeah, where's his wife at? Back at the Keogh farm, investigators and neighbors found that every building on Keogh's property had been incinerated, with the exception of the hen house. I swear I could do a whole, like, explosives like detailed maniac episode of the hen house, the way he set it up. It's insane. Okay. But I'll just dumb it down into this. Please do. Inside the hen house was yet again, another explosive device that failed to detonate. Very fortunately to us, he was not successful in doing so. Also discovered inside the main house was the very badly charred body of Nellie Keogh. Upon further investigation, it seemed that Andrew had been kind enough to bludgeon his wife to death before exploding the property Mm. and having her burned alive. Such a nice man. Such a thoughtful guy. The back of Nellie's skull showed trauma caused by a blunt object. She was found with a pile. Oh, Pat, this is rough. She was found with a pile of debris on top of her to include the couple's marriage license as well as a pile of her hospital bills that she had recently accrued. Ugh. Dick. Right? That's... Like, here's the reason why. Like, Jesus. There's no feeling. It's, there's no feeling in the sky whatsoever. matter of fact, like, that's what? I shot your dog because it annoyed me. Here's why she died. It's like this. You know what I mean? He's so matter of fact. Is it psychopathy or what do you, what do you think? It's crazy. I think it's mental illness at this point. Almost as shocking as that, Patrick. Also found were the blackened skeletons of Andrew's Two horses. They had been burned alive. Not only that, Pat, but their legs had been bound together with wires so they couldn't escape the flames. <laughs> one final act of animal cruelty. And it's not even animal cruelty, just one final act of like sadisticness. And as we said at the beginning of the episode, one final discovery, a handmade sign 
hanging on the property fence, undoubtedly made by Andrew himself. It reads, quote, criminals are made, not born, as if Kehoe himself was saying, I wasn't born this way. You all forced my hand. That's nuts. And finally, do you remember the large box that Andrew took out for delivery the morning of the bombing that I said we get back to? Yeah, it was like the Pacific Railroad or something okay. like that. It would eventually be located. And although the box itself was actually a repurposed pyrotol crate. Of course. A little cause for alarm there, eh? <laughs> Thankfully, it did not contain explosives inside the box which was intended to be shipped to a man named Clyde B. Smith in Lansing. He was Kehoe's insurance agent. Kehoe had meticulously assembled for him all the records that he had kept over his years as the school board's treasurer. I mean, awesome, thanks. And get this, a letter addressed to Clyde that ended with, quote, I am leaving the school board. I'm resigning and turning over to all of you my accounts, end quote, before he killed the whole community. Yeah. So he sends his lawyer all his records and said, here's all the things I found. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm resigning. I mean, I, I don't have words. The community of Bath was indeed broken. It was safe to say that in a community that that small, Literally every family had a child or at the very least knew a child that attended the Bath Consolidated School. Everyone was affected in some way. It was discussed having one mass funeral in an effort to save the town money. But after the countless grieving parents protested, they're like, you know what? Let's just go ahead and give everyone a funeral, which thank God they agreed with. So the town's reverend began holding funerals and shifts so that every member could attend, which that's awesome. The first of many children laid to rest would be eight-year-old Thelma McDonald. Her father was actually the reverend Scott McDonald, pastor of the United Methodist Church, and he had just moved his family to Bath, Michigan, less than a year earlier. And simultaneously, without anyone knowing, Andrew Keough was buried in an unmarked grave with only the gravedigger and priest in attendance. No one would have come to pay their respects anyways, I'd no. imagine. No, Some people might have come to see him dead, maybe, but- As per Michigan state law, an inquest was held. And of course, Andrew Kehoe was found guilty, but they found Kehoe to have been sane at the time of his crimes. The final death toll stands at 45. 38 of those victims were children. 58 people were left badly injured. Kehoe's motive to this day remains, quote, inconclusive. He's just a dick. He didn't want to lose. He didn't care about anybody but himself. Nope. He's just a bad human being. Horrible. Socio... 
pathic, psychopathic, all the pathics just should have been put down. Yeah, I mean, he's he's one of the bad ones. Not just the murderers. Like, I always find these, these ones, like these stories, to be a different kind of evil. The Timothy McVeigh's of the world. Just kind like a clear disregard for humanity. Just like, I'm not saying that but, killing of some person is But to have an issue but, with like the school, the school, right? The school and the tax that's inflicted on you, I get, right? But to then to bomb the children and to kill the children, that's a, whoa, that's like going to, like you don't kill anyone. That's why I'm saying those people like him and like McVeigh, like they picked targets that were children and they were mad about something that had nothing to do with those kids and they just picked the children to blow up. And then even I say Dylan and what's his face because the what they did was just evil. You had to plan that shit so much. Like, yeah, there's a different kind of evil in that to me. Still, what? Because I've been researching this for like a couple of months now. What really gets me is the mom that just walked up to be like, "What's going on? What like, what's me? going on?" And then her baby is hanging. Of course. Oh my god! That's me. what struck me. It I'm like, me oh, I can't. I was gonna say what gets me is I didn't know this much detail about it, and I thought like he just had all the explosives in the bottom. I didn't know he actually like took the effort to like rig over months. Like, yeah, so I'm saying like, yeah, met- 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 meticulously, meticulously rig the entire building. Strategically to implode and do all these things. I just thought it was like a, he had a bunch of explosives in the bottom and he blew it up. Strategery. <laughs> There's some strategery there. I feel bad making. I was there. trying. Well, I was trying to bring a little light. <laughs> I know. And we both looked at each other like. I'm doing some right George now. Bush strategery. I'm doing my hands in the George Bush motion too. <laughs> strategery. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, that's the story of the horrible bat disaster. Yeah, that's a rough one. That's a rough one. But if you're a Patreon member, join us next week for my health update. And if not, not We're to back, worry. So don't worry. We weeks. will see you week after next for another twisted tale. Love you. Be good to each other. Bye.